Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our feature presentation. The Gospels are biographies of Jesus. They are life writings of Jesus. And that's what biography literally means, bios is life and graphia means writing. And so biography uh, is a life writing. And because biographies focus on the life of an individual person, they usually don't cover a very large period of time. They usually only cover uh, the, the time between the birth and death of the person that's being written about. Or in some cases, a biography will only cover a a portion of the time between the birth and death of the person being written about, such as the portion of time characterized by their childhood or the time, the years that they spent in military service. Some biographers will add a little historical background to the biography or some genealogical information so that the, the reader can know something about the social context and the family into which the subject of the biography was born. But beyond that, a biography typically only covers a short period of time. And that's pretty much what the gospel writers uh, do when writing about the life of Jesus. Matthew and Luke both begin their accounts uh, with the genealogy of Jesus, and then they proceed to write about his birth and childhood. And then they write about his uh, ministry years as an adult, and they conclude with his resurrection. And so both of their Gospels, Matthew's and Luke's Gospels, cover about 33 years of Jesus' life. Mark, he skips Jesus' birth and childhood entirely. He begins with Jesus' baptism and concludes with the resurrection. And so Mark's Gospel only covers about three years of Jesus' life. Now, neither of these approaches are unusual for a biography. Uh, What is unusual, however, is John's starting point. John begins his gospel as far back as he can possibly go. He goes all the way back to the beginning of time. He goes all the way back to Genesis 1-1, and he asserts that when time and matter were first created, Jesus was already there. Look at verses one and two. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And the words in the book of John, these words are very simple. And this is not only true in our English translations, this is true in the original language as well. First year students of New Testament Greek customarily begin translation exercises right here in the first chapter of John. And this is because the vocabulary that John uses is very basic, and the grammar is very straightforward. But even though the, gra- the vocabulary and grammar are, are very plain and basic, the concepts that John is expressing and introducing to us here are exceedingly profound. You might say that the concepts are daunting, They stretch our minds beyond their capacity. They declare things that are too grand for us to comprehend in their fullness. And so as John sets out to write about the life of Jesus, 
he introduces one of these grand concepts in the very first verse. He begins by explaining that Jesus doesn't have a beginning. Now, how can this be so, you ask? Well, John tells us very plainly. It's because Jesus is God, and God has always been. As the second person of the Trinity, Jesus has existed from all eternity past. Infinity is a difficult concept for us to wrap our minds around. And there are two types of infinity. Uh, There's a type that has a beginning, but not an end. And then there's a type that has neither beginning nor an end. Uh, This type, this this first type, the one that has a beginning, um, but not an end, is the easier one for us to understand. It's easier because we encounter this type of infinity in creation. Uh, For example, when you study mathematics, you'll learn about infinite numbers or non-terminating numbers, as they're sometimes called. Pi is a common example. It has a starting point, but not an ending point. It starts with a number three. We can all see that very plainly. And then the three is followed by a decimal point and then a bunch of digits, one, four, one, five, nine, and those digits just keep going and going and going for all eternity. They never end, they just keep going. There are an infinite number of digits in the number pi. Well, this is also the type of infinity that our Christian worldview teaches about the immortality of man. Every human being is eternal in the sense that we begin to exist at conception, so there's a a beginning point, but then we live for some number of days on earth and our body dies, but our soul never dies. Our soul never dies. And even our bodies are gonna be resurrected and reunited with our souls. And so human beings have a, a decisive starting point, but never an ending point. Every human being will continue to exist for all eternity in either heaven or hell. The more difficult type of infinity for us to wrap our minds around is the other type, the one that has no beginning or end. This is more difficult for us because there's nothing in creation that has this characteristic, nothing. Only God has this characteristic. Only the three persons of the Trinity are without beginning. Everything else has a beginning. Time has a beginning. Matter has a beginning. Heaven has a beginning. Hell has a beginning. The angels and demons have a beginning, but God never had a beginning. He has always existed. And so when John takes up the task of writing a biography of Jesus, he starts at the beginning, the beginning of time, that is. He starts at Genesis 1.1 and says, Jesus was there. He was with the Father and the Spirit, and he created everything that has been created. That's as far back as John could go. But it's an appropriate starting point because if he's writing about the life of Jesus, then he should consider starting in the beginning, at least as far back to the beginning as he could possibly go. And this is, this is a much different starting point than where the other gospel writers begin their biographies. Um, but we do not fault Matthew and Luke for starting with Jesus' birth narrative. That's not wrong. Nor do we fault Mark for starting with Jesus' baptism. That's not wrong. 
because we understand that each of the gospel writers were writing to a specific audience for a specific purpose, which is to say the gospels did not emerge in a vacuum. Each of them was written under the inspiration of God to address specific needs within the church. For example, John tells us very clearly what the purpose of his gospel is. In 2031, he says that he wrote these things so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's why he wrote it. That's his intent and purpose. John therefore records more of Jesus' miracles than the other three gospel writers do. And not surprisingly, the most prominent theme in John's gospel is faith. John uses the Greek word for faith 103 times in his gospel, which is more than all three of the other gospel writers combined. And interestingly, however, John uses only the verb form of this word. He, he, uh, he never uses the noun form. The verb form is translated in English as believing. The noun form is translated into English as faith. John only uses the verb form. All 103 incidents of him using the word for faith, it's in the verb form. And this shows us that John is not focusing on faith, but he's emphasizing the need for one's faith to produce a living and active trust in Jesus Christ. It's not just about having correct theology in your head, but that having correct theology in your head will express itself through walking in commitment and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew's gospel is noticeably different. Uh, he is the most Jewish, his is the most Jewish of the gospels. Uh, because he writes to a Jewish audience, Matthew uses more direct quotes and allusions to the Old Testament than the other three gospel writers do. And the central theme of Matthew's gospel is the kingdom. Not only does he use the word kingdom more than any of the other gospel writers, but Matthew repetitively emphasizes the global impact Jesus' kingdom is, is having upon the world. Mark is writing to a Roman audience who knows very little about Jewish culture. You'll notice that Mark will often be guiding his readers to a better understanding of the Jewishness of the Messiah. For example, Mark translates some of the Aramaic words that are left untranslated in the other gospels. And Mark is the only gospel that includes Latin phrases. Luke, he's also writing to a Gentile audience, but not as specifically defined as Mark's. Whereas Mark is writing to a, a Roman audience, Luke is writing to a Greek audience. And Luke's ambition is to write an orderly account of what Jesus has done, demonstrating that the good news of Jesus Christ is offered to everyone in the world. This is why we see Luke emphasizing Jesus' ministry to outcasts, to women, and to Gentiles. And we notice that he writes with sensitivity to the, the questions Gentiles might ask, even going so far as to interpret some of the Jewish cultural expressions for his readers. For example, consider how differently Matthew and Luke record Jesus's Olivet Discourse. Matthew, writing to a Jewish audience, records Jesus saying, 
Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Notice how Matthew adds a parenthetical statement at the end of verse 15. Jesus did not say, whoever reads, let him understand. Matthew added that. Matthew wants to signal to his Jewish readers that Jesus is speaking symbolically here. He, Matthew wants his readers to recall that uh, what, what they know about Daniel's prophecy of the abomination of desolation, and he wants them to apply that understanding to the events of their own day. So Matthew records the exact words of, that Jesus spoke, and then he adds this short parenthetical statement to signal to his readers that they need to interpret Jesus' words symbolically. Luke records the same discourse of Jesus, but he knows, Luke that is, knows that his readers are not familiar with Daniel's prophecy about the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place. Luke knows that if he writes the exact words that Jesus spoke, then the vast majority of his Gentile audience is going to miss the point. So Luke takes the liberty of performing the interpretation for his readers. Luke writes, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Notice what Luke is doing here. When Jesus made reference to the holy place. Luke interprets this for his Gentile readers, telling them to keep their eye on Jerusalem. And when Jesus spoke of the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, Luke interprets this for his uh, Gentile readers as well. And so the Gentile readers are uh, are told to be looking for the Roman armies to be gathered around Jerusalem. And when they see this happen, then they are to flee to the mountains. Now, you've probably heard people claim that the gospels are full of contradictions. They'll say that when you compare one gospel to another, you'll see discrepancies between the different accounts. And they'll point to the different ways Matthew and Luke record Jesus' Olivet Discourse and ask, which is it? Did Jesus say to flee to the mountains when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place? Or did he say to flee to the mountains when you see armies surrounding Jerusalem? Then they'll assert, at least one of these writers is misrepresenting what Jesus said. This is a contradiction. And because the Gospels contain so many contradictions, we cannot believe them. We cannot trust them. The Christian's response to this assertion is to explain that this is not a contradiction because both writers are saying the same thing. Uh, Matthew records the actual words of Jesus and then tells his readers to do the necessary interpretive work uh, whereas Luke gives the meaning, the interpreted meaning of Jesus' work on behalf of his readers. And this is not a weakness in the gospel. This is not something to be embarrassed about. Rather, this is a strength. This is God's design. This is how God chose to reveal the biography of Jesus to us. Consider the following five points. Having four gospels gives us multiple perspectives. 
As has already been explained, each gospel offers a unique perspective on the life, teaching, and ministry of Jesus Christ. And while all are writing about the life of Jesus, each author emphasizes different aspects and events uh, about the life of Jesus. And so collectively, they present a more comprehensive and well-rounded picture of Jesus. Second, having four gospels provides a form of historical corroboration. When different authors independently record the events and teachings of Jesus, it adds credibility to the historical reliability of these accounts. In other words, it satisfies the biblical criteria of having two or three witnesses testify about these things. And third, multiple gospel accounts can help the reader place uh, a piece together a more comprehensive narrative, comprehensive narrative of the life and ministry of Jesus. For example, some events may be mentioned in only one gospel, but not the others, such as our sermon text today. None of the other three, none of the synoptic gospels begin with Jesus' eternality, but John does. And so reading through all four gospel accounts helps us fill in the gaps and provide a a more detailed narrative of Jesus' life, a more comprehensive narrative of Jesus' life. Fourth, the different themes uh, that characterize each of the different gospels helps provide better theological insights for us. Theological insights or theological themes such as faith, salvation, the kingdom, love, and discipleship are presented in the four gospels from different angles. And this allows deeper exploration and deeper understanding of these teachings, resulting in better theological insights when, uh, that we would gain if we were just reading one gospel, or that of all the four gospels were written in a completely unified approach. And, and fifth, the final one, different individuals may find one or two of the gospels more relatable than the others. For example, um, I presented... Uh, Jesus' Olivet Discourse here and how it's different in Matthew and Luke. Because most of us think, most of us sitting here today, think and process information like the Greeks, more like the Greeks than the Jews. Uh, Many of us will read Matthew's Gospel and scratch our heads. We'll we'll be wondering what we're supposed to do with this, this information about the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place. And if you've ever turned on the television and watched prophecy preachers, you'll see some wild speculation about what people do with this passage. This is not, this Daniel passage is not easily relatable to many of us. Yet Luke's rendition is highly relatable to many of us sitting here. We can relate to what Luke has written and immediately understand it. And so, The variety of gospel accounts allows different people from different backgrounds with different levels of biblical knowledge learn from the gospel that speaks most directly to them. And that gospel can act as a gateway to the other gospels, helping better understand some of the difficult cultural components in those other gospels. Luke is a wonderful gateway into Matthew for those who have Uh, not a comprehensive knowledge of the Old Testament, and who are thinking like Greek people. And this is why I'm opting to preach through all four of the Gospels simultaneously. 
it's a little more difficult for me to do it this way. It would be easier if I just picked one gospel and preached systematically from the beginning to the end. But for the reasons I just cited, I'm convinced that it's going to be more beneficial for all of us to go through all four of the gospels simultaneously and chronologically, bringing together all these unique perspectives and trying to to meld them into a, a comprehensive narrative. It's going to provide us with a more complete and better nuanced understanding of Jesus' life and teachings. And it's going to help us know who Jesus is and what he came to do. And this is not a trivial consideration, brothers and sisters. It's not a trivial trivial consideration because John tells us in our sermon text that there are two kinds of people in this world. Those who know Jesus and those who do not know Jesus. And the difference between knowing Jesus and not knowing Jesus is the difference between spending eternity in heaven and spending eternity in hell. Of course, when John speaks of knowing Jesus, he's not speaking of possessing an intellectual knowledge of a man named Jesus who used to walk around Judea with 12 disciples following him. Rather, John is saying uh, that to know Jesus is to recognize him. It's to recognize him as the word made flesh, as God incarnate, as the long-awaited Messiah who saves his people from their sins. Look at verse 10. Speaking of Jesus, John writes, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. Now notice how John repeats the word world three times in this verse. He clearly wants to draw our attention to the world's relationship to Jesus. First, he says that Jesus was in the world. This refers to his incarnation, that God became a man who lived and walked amongst the people of this world. The point being, by becoming a man, Jesus was knowable. He was approachable. People could see Jesus. They could touch Jesus. They could talk with Jesus. They can establish a personal relationship with Jesus. And so God did not remain apart from his creation. Rather, he came into his creation. He entered into this world and he dwelt as a man amongst other men. And he made himself knowable, approachable, tangible, able to have a relationship with. Second, John says, that the world was made through Jesus. Now you might notice that John is using here the same vocabulary in verse 10 that he used in verse three. Verse three, he wrote, all things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made. And this is emphasizing Jesus's divinity and his role as a creator. Uh, Whereas John was emphasizing Jesus' humanity when he wrote that Jesus was in the world, he's emphasizing Jesus' divinity as he writes that the world was made through him. And so John is showing us both sides of the same coin. He's presenting to us the God-man, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. And the third reference to the world explains the rejection of Jesus. John writes that the world did not know him. The world did not know him. And even though people came in contact with Jesus and were able to interact with the the person who had created them and every other thing that has ever been created, they did not know him. 
That is, they did not recognize him. And because they did not recognize him, they did not receive him. The light shines in the darkness, John writes in verse 5, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The creature met the creator and did not comprehend him. But John tells us that there was another group of people who did recognize Jesus. Verse 11, he came to, or another, I should say, that did not recognize Jesus. The world did not know Jesus. And then John goes on to say there's a subgroup of the world that also does not recognize Jesus. Verse 11, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. And this is referring to the Jewish people. Uh, Jesus came to the Jewish people, but they did not receive him. And if you're reading from a, a reference Bible or a study Bible, you might see a margin note indicating that the words his own, and Jesus came to his own, can be translated as domain or home. Uh, so this alternative translation would say something like, Jesus came to his own home, but his own household did not receive him. And there's good support for this alternative translation. In Greek, it's the exact same expression that um, used here in verse 11 that's used in John 19, 27. While uh, Jesus was hanging on the cross and about to die, he said to John, behold your mother. And John 19, 27 then says, and from that hour, that disciple took her into his home. Or not into, to. From that hour, that disciple took her to his home. John took Mary to his home. And it's the exact same expression that's in verse 11 of our sermon text. And so we understand verse 11 to be saying that when Jesus came into this world, he did not come as a stranger. Rather, he came to the house of his covenant people, his home. He came to the people that should have known him. He came to those who had been given all the advantages of God's special revelation so they could recognize him and receive him, and yet they did neither. Hebrews 1.1 says that God spoke at various times and in various ways to the house of Israel, but then God sent his son to the house of Israel. And this was a uh, a superior form of revelation because then what God had revealed at various times and in various ways in the past, because Jesus goes on to say in Hebrews 1, is the brightness of glory and the expressed image of God the Father. But even then, even after having sent the, the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of God the Father, the people of Israel did not receive Jesus, John writes at the end of verse 11. They did not receive him. Now the Greek verb that's translated receive is used uh, to describe the act of taking another person into a close, personal, loving relationship with oneself. For example, it's the verb that is used in Matthew one twenty and one twenty four to describe Joseph taking Mary as his wife. It's also used in John 14, 3 to describe Jesus taking believers to himself in heaven. And this was the kind of reception that the people of Israel should have given Jesus when he came to his own household. They should have received him into a close, loving, and personal relationship with themselves, but they rejected him. In fact, they did worse than that. They despised him and eventually murdered him. 
Yet John tells us that there are people who did receive Jesus into a close, loving, and personal relationship. He writes about them in verses 12 and 13. But as many as receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now let me call your attention to three important words in these two verses. The first word is gave. John says that Jesus gave a gift to certain people, and that gift enabled them to receive him and believe in his name. The second word is right. John says that those who have been given the gift have the right to become children of God. And they've been given full entitlement to that status. And notice what John does not say that they have... uh, he, notice John does not say that they have the right to be the children of God, but to become the children of God. Uh, this means that there's a change in the, uh, a person's relationship to God. Previously, they were not in that relationship, and yet, because of the gift that was given to them, they now are. Uh, when the gift is given, that person goes from not being a child of God to being a child of God. And this brings us to the third important term that John uses in verses 12 and 13, which is children. When he writes about becoming children of God, he's referring to people being adopted into God's family. He's referring to being made sons and daughters of the living God through faith in Jesus Christ. He's referring to what Paul was writing about in Romans 8, verses 14 through 17. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received a spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. But within the context of our sermon text, I think there's something else that John is driving at when he writes about us becoming children of God. Uh, All throughout the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was known as the children of God. Think about that for a second. All throughout the Old Testament, the nation of Israel claimed the identity to that title, children of God. And yet John says in verse 11 that when Jesus came in the flesh, the people of Israel did not receive him. Or as the alternative translation puts it, the people of his own household did not receive him. Well, John is introducing another one of those grand concepts in verses 12 and 13. He's telling us that Jesus is bringing Gentiles into his household. Jesus is giving everyone who receives him and believes in his name, the right to become children of God, the right to that status that was previously held only by the nation of Israel. Look again at verse 12. But as many as receive him, referring to Jesus, to them Jesus gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. But the question still needs to be answered. Who are these people who receive Jesus and believe in his name? And John has already explained that the world did not know Jesus. And John has already explained that the Jews did not receive Jesus. So who are these people who receive him and believe in his name? Verse 13 supplies the answer. It's everyone who is born of God. 
It's everyone who is born of God. There can be no doubt about what John means when he writes about being born of God. In chapter three, he's gonna tell of the conversation Jesus had with Nicodemus, and Jesus tells Nicodemus that he needs to be born again, and that conversation develops into a distinction between the natural birth that we all experience when we're born into this world and the new birth a sinner experiences when he's regenerated by the Spirit of God. So when John writes about being born of God in verse 13 of our sermon text, he's referring to being born again. He's referring to the Spirit's act of regeneration within the heart of a sinner. And to avoid any confusion about who initiates this regeneration and who accomplishes this rebirth. John addresses three possible misunderstandings about the new birth. First, he says it's not being born of blood, meaning it's not your bloodline that causes you to be a child of God. Nobody can say, I'm a child of God because I have Abraham as my father. Nobody can say, I'm a child of God because my parents are Christians. John is making it crystal clear that a person is not a child of God by being born of blood. Second, he says it's not of the will of the flesh. In other words, it's not of good works. Nobody can say they're a child of God because of the works that they've done in the flesh, that they've somehow earned the status of child of God. And third, John says it's not of the will of man, not of the will of man. And this is the error of the Arminians that John is uh, addressing here. Arminians say that Jesus Christ died a substitutionary death on the cross, making salvation possible for everybody, but his atonement is only effectual for those who choose him according to their own free will. In other words, Arminians teach that the will of man determines who is and is not born again. But John is being very explicit here in verse 13. He says in in no uncertain terms that the new birth is not determined by the will of man. The new birth is not determined by the will of man. So if the new birth is not of blood and it's not of the will of the flesh and it's not of the will of man, then what is it of? It's of God. John is declaring that it's God who causes sinners to be born again. It's God who initiates the new birth. And it's God who gives a new heart with new affections and new loyalties to the rebellious sinner. And it's only after the sinner has been born of God that he can, for the first time in his life, see the beauty of Jesus Christ and the loving kindness of Jesus Christ. It's only after the sinner has been born of God that he can believe in Jesus Christ and receive him as his Lord and Savior. And this is the truth that Paul wrote about in Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 6. As I read these three verses aloud, listen to who's initiating man's salvation. Listen to whose will it is. Listen to who performs the adoption. And listen to who makes everything happen. Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 6. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, 
according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Brothers and sisters, we cannot escape the clear biblical teaching that God designed our salvation. He initiates our salvation. He accomplishes our salvation. And it's all performed according to the good pleasure of his will. It's not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but it's exclusively of the will of God. And so John is teaching us in our sermon text that from start to finish, salvation is in Jesus Christ. If you are saved, then that's because you have been elected in Christ Jesus from before the foundation of the world. And God has seen fit to carry out your salvation according to his goodwill. And this brings us back to that difficult concept of eternality. Before the events of Genesis 1-1, God the Father knew you. He had already elected you in Christ Jesus to be adopted into his household. In Christ, you have already been given, way back before the beginning of time, you had already been given the right to become a child of God. So if you've received Jesus as the eternal word made flesh, and if you believe that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved, then this is evidence that you've been born of God. This is evidence that you've been regenerated by the Spirit of God. And so what should your response be? It should be praise. It should be an expression of our gratitude. It should be rejoicing in the eternal goodness and mercy of our triune God. And it should be wanting to know him more. It should be wanting to experience Christ Jesus in all its fullness. And this is why I made the statement earlier that it's not a trivial consideration that we should uh, um, chart a path through the gospels that gives us the most complete and better nuanced understanding of Jesus' life and teachings. Whether you already know him as your savior or you need to know him as your savior, he is revealed to us in the written word of God, which is to say, we need to read and study and hear the preaching of these four biographies of Jesus. Because the Spirit applies these words in these four gospel accounts to our hearts, to the hearts of the elect in such a way that it generates faith in us. It generates understanding within us. It generates knowledge within us. It generates belief and trust within us. But not just the noun form of faith, right? The Holy Spirit doesn't produce just the noun form of faith within us. He also produces the verb form of faith. And so we don't gain knowledge of Jesus just so that we can expand our theology. We gain knowledge of Jesus so we can expand our theology and our expanded theology will express itself in greater commitment and obedience to Jesus Christ. So, brothers and sisters, will you please join your hearts with mine as we ask the Lord to increase our knowledge of Jesus so that we can know him, so that we can receive him, believe in him, and walk more closely with him? Let's pray. 
This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted, copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George, available at nathanclarkgeorge.com.